This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. I want you to imagine that our men's ministries held a Packer party out here in the lobby. We got TVs, we got tables, we got chairs set up. We're ready for a great time. And as you walked in to look at the scene, you discovered something that looks off. Instead of eating brats and burgers, there is formula in nipple-topped bottles at each place setting. And that's what these guys are going to have for the Packer party. Uh, You would think this is a joke, somebody lost a bet, or the student ministries is up to no good. (laughs) But what I was to tell you, no, actually, none of that's true. This is just how these guys roll. This is how they roll. Your idea of a great time for a Packer party is not burgers and brats, it's baby formula. It wouldn't make sense to you. You have no category for that, right? Right? No way. That's not possible. That is not possible. Why? Because where you're meant to grow out of some things and into other things. Do you remember when you were a child and your idea of the best meal was hot dogs and Kraft mac and cheese? You could not fathom a better meal. How about today? Can you think of something a little bit better than that? I can. I hope you can. Because not to is very strange. It's very strange. Paul is going to be talking about the topic of spiritual adulthood today. Just as it's true physically with our food, so it is spiritually. We are meant to grow out of some things and into other things. And for us not to is as strange as watching a group of men drink baby formula from nipple top bottles. By the way, ladies, you don't have to worry about your men here. We consumed 56 pounds of thick-cut bacon two weeks ago. So this is not an issue for us. Paul is still talking about the topic of factionalism in the church, the fan club problem. But just like links in a chain, he'll circle back and then he'll move the argument forward. He'll add a little more fodder for us to think through. And he does that today by talking about the issue of spiritual infancy and spiritual adulthood. What he's doing is saying, look, if you're going to have unity in the church, you got to have some spiritual adults. We're going to look at four marks of spiritual adulthood. Here they are, and then we'll walk through them. Selfless contentment, a modest view of church leaders, insistence on sound doctrine, and reverence for the church. Marks of spiritual adulthood needed for there to be unity in the church. Number one, selfless contentment. You see it in the first four verses of chapter three. Paul writes, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulos. Are you not being merely human? So what's Paul saying? He's saying they are Christians. He calls them brothers. They are Christians. They are in Christ. But they are infants in Christ. Literally, people of the flesh. 
This is where the term carnal Christianity comes from. You might have heard that at some point in your background. This is where it comes from. The Corinthians are fleshly Christians, are carnal Christians. They have the spirit, but they simply don't act like it. They are unacceptably spiritually immature. Now notice in here that spiritual maturity or spiritual adulthood is an expectation of all Christians. We are not talking about, when we look at the four marks of spiritual adulthood, we are not talking about something that's optional. We're not talking about something that's, that's for some real serious Christians, but the rest of us can kind of just hang back. At no point in time does he, in this passage, suggest to us that some may remain as they are. The whole thrust of the passage is to propel them out from where they are onto spiritual adulthood. Now, carnal Christianity has been mostly understood to have sexual overtones. That's not the case here. Not in this passage. Carnal Christianity is marked here by jealousy and strife. Jealousy and strife. Antonyms to selfless contentment. You'll notice in this passage, it's it's pretty negative. So, it's a little risky. But what I've chosen to do is to take the antonym of what Paul's talking about. Spin it positively to look at marks of spiritual adulthood rather than marks of spiritual infancy. Jealousy and strife is the problem here. They're two separate but related words. I'll give you definitions here. Jealousy is the desire to acquire the status, possessions, esteem, or honor supposedly accorded to others. The desire to have something God has given to someone else. Strife is the expression of this desire in active strategies to gain advantage for oneself. So both terms have to do with advancing the interests of the self in response to seeing what someone else has. Let me tell you something. Jealousy or envy is a cancer in our culture right now. Maybe it's always been, but it's a cancer. It's not an overstatement to say that envy is one of the core evils that rots a society and a community. Now, in the Corinthians case, envy is the cancer that's eating away at their church unity. Where do we see common manifestations of envy? Well, the classic one is in money and possessions, right? Money and possessions. When I want what someone else has monetarily, that is the sin of envy. And so often, envy hides underneath the accusations of greed hurled in the direction of someone who has more comparatively. If I charge someone with being greedy, I may in fact be expressing my envy. And the irony of that is so often, envy is actually greedy. When envy reaches full bloom, it combines greed with thievery. It takes, it steals. Or if it can't have what it wants, it destroys. In full demonic mode, envy says, if I can't have what you have, then I'll destroy what you have so you can't have it either. Another place that envy shows up is in physical appearance. I grew up in a day and age where we were constantly warned about the checkout line in grocery stores and the magazine covers and the airbrushed ladies that are on those and you know, all these Teenage girls who are seeing this, 
Now it's a whole lot more accessible. It's on your phone. Or as one author puts it in the title of his book, it's the wolf in your pocket. We have to make our kids wise to the sin of envy. We have to make them wise to the sin of envy. You don't need to look like that. Regardless of what you're told, that's not normal. You don't need to have someone else's face or looks or body. Perhaps the most talked about manifestation of envy today is transgenderism. Rosaria Butterfield in her magnificent book writes this, the sin of transgenderism is actually the sin of envy. If our child identifies as transgender, then yes, the sin of envy and covetousness needs to be cut off, not the beautiful physical body that God graciously gave her. People obsessed with having a sex and gender not rightly theirs, and people who are willing to mutilate themselves and manipulate others to get this are under the control of the sin of envy. Envy, biblically speaking, is a self-destructive passion that insatiably drives a person to desire another's gifts, possessions, or achievements. Envy is sinful jealousy. It's the false entitlement that says you may possess that which justly belongs to another and fuels the blind arrogance to pursue it. She goes on to say that envy is the predatory desire to have what belongs to someone else. That's an important point. Envy will turn you into a predator. If left unchecked, envy inevitably turns violent. When you take this in, it becomes less surprising to me that envy is on God's top 10 list. Ten Commandments, the one about, against, covetousness. It's put right alongside commands against murder, adultery, and stealing. It's the one that we downplay, though. Oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, no. Envy, jealousy is a horrific evil. A horrific evil. In the context of the Corinthians and us today, we may not mutilate our own bodies to get what we want. We might not mutilate another body. We might not steal to get what someone else has, but our envy will manifest itself with our use of our tongues. This is what Paul's been warning about. We will display factious behavior in how we talk about other people. Envy drives in that direction. We'll mutilate others with our tongues. We disparage them. We tear them down. Now, if that's not bad enough, we need to remember that envy is not just committed against another individual. It's committed against God. Don't think for a moment this has no vertical dimension to it. Stephen Sharnock, writing many years ago, writes this. He says, men practically deny providence, abuse it, or condemn it when they envy. To be sad at the temporal good or gifts of another, counting him as unworthy of them, casts a reflection upon the author of those gifts. 
It accuses providence of an unjust or unwise distribution. But God may do what he will with his own. We are all prone to this temper. It is peculiarly the product of self-love that would control the conduct of God in distributing his goods only to whom we are pleased. Did you catch that? Envy de God's God. It's a criticism of God. It says to him, you have failed to rule this world according to my standards. You have failed, God, to distribute your gifts in a manner that pleases me. To put this crassly envy as a giant middle finger in God's direction. Now, Paul returns to the subject of contentment later in the letter, but he anticipates it here. Spiritual adulthood is marked by selfless contentment. What does it sound like? Very simple. I am content to remain as I am. My station in life has been ordered by God himself. And while I may not understand it all because he's good, I'm good with that. This is the voice of spiritual adulthood. It's the voice of selfless contentment. Second, spiritual adulthood is marked by a modest view of church leaders. Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. So Paul is using a parable from the agricultural world. And he is certainly lowering the status of a minister by picturing himself and Apollos as field hands. So we will call Paul plowboy. And we will call Apollos water boy. We've got plowboy. We've got water boy. I think it's safe to say with all that we've read so far about the Corinthians, they glamorize certain ministers. And so Paul's metaphor is probably meant to be a dig on their understanding of what a church leader is. Because he's inverting their notions of what church leaders are. Plowboy and waterboy are not glamorous titles. But it's remarkable how Paul is able to humble our notion of church leaders while still affirming the value of what they do. How does he do that? Plowboy and waterboy are necessary for the work that's being done. It's legitimate work. It's good work. But neither plowboys nor waterboys are elevated above each other. So a rivalry between a plowboy and a waterboy makes no sense. It's absolutely absurd. This is not a battlefield. They're on the same team. They're working towards the same end. They're playing the same game. For crying out loud, using Paul's own metaphor, they're in the same field. They're after the same end. And as good as important as all that is, Paul makes sure to remember who the star of the show is. God. God is the life force that produces the harvest. Think about it. The plow boy is scattering seed that came from God. <laughs> the water boy is watering, seed, is watering the seed with water that came from God. God is the life force that produces the harvest. You know, we have business cards of all our staff out there in the lobby. I've, I, when I was going through this, I thought to myself, we should change all the titles. We should assign plow boy, 
water girl, plow girl, water girl, water boy. We should change it all. That's what we are. That's what we are. He's not denying the importance of individual faithfulness and work ethic. Certainly not doing that. Both plowboy and water boy will receive their wages according to their labor, Paul says. That's not talking about the church paying a pastor's wage, by the way. This is talking about the final judgment. When plowboys and water boys from all the centuries stand before Jesus to give an account for what they did. I'm just a water boy. But when the final day comes and I'm evaluated, according to my labor, as Paul puts it, I want to be found that I worked hard with all the energy that Jesus so powerfully provides. And so another mark of spiritual adulthood the Corinthians didn't have right is their view of leaders. Church leaders are simply industrious plowboys, water boys. That's it. Nothing more. God is the one that grows things. So spiritual adulthood has a modest view of church leaders. And by the way, this, this argument is recapitulated in verses 18 to 23. I'm not going to unpack those for lack of time, but, but it's recapitulated in verses 18 to 23. Spiritual adulthood has a modest view of church leaders. Several years ago, I was meeting with a number of area pastors, and whenever we get together, our conversations meander. We kind of go all over the place until our time's up. There's never really an agenda. And I'm not sure how we landed here, but we landed on the topic of pastoral departures. Not over controversial things, but, you know, being called to another church or retiring um, after a long stint at the church. And, uh, and one of the pastors said, look, when that happens, here's how the people are going to respond. You're going to have a small group of people who are really, really disproportionately upset over the departure of that pastor. He said, then you're going to have a small group of people who are going to be popping champagne corks that he's leaving. He says, but the larger group is going to respond like this. They're going to say, oh, yeah, Brian, John, Dwayne, all all of those. Yeah, you know, really grateful for how God worked through them. Really grateful. Who's next? Who's next? And I thought about that. I think that's exactly right. I think that is a modest view of church leaders. That neither gets disproportionately upset over the departure, nor is popping champagne corks at the departure, but is in the middle of saying, you know what, really grateful for all that God did through that individual. Who's next? Who's next? That's a mark of spiritual adulthood. They have a modest view of church leaders. Third, insistence on sound doctrine. You are God's building, according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is his second parable. First was the agricultural world. Second one is the architectural world. And his focus here is not so much on who leaders are or how we should view them, but what leaders are to do and to be about. The focus is on the nature of their work. Spiritual adulthood displays itself 
an insistence on sound doctrine that these leaders are building with good materials. So he's got six materials listed. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Think of them in two groups of three. One group survives fire. Gold, silver, precious stones survive fire. Wood, hay, and straw is burned up. Paul is saying some church leaders and pastors will build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Others will build with wood, hay, and straw. Christian adulthood, Christian maturity asks, pleads, prays for leaders who build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, here's the deal with this. As Paul says here, you and I are not going to, in the end, judge whether or not that leader built with gold, silver, and precious stones. That's not going to be revealed until the final judgment. So a good question to ask is we would... Ideally, I would like to know now (laughs) what constitutes gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, and straw. I would like to know that. Maybe you would like to know that as well. Well, I think we could figure that out. One of the things that Paul has been thick with thus far in the book is the gospel. So we're going to put the gospel in there as good stuff, good building material, not wood, hay, and straw. Another one we could throw in there, actually, that constitutes this gold, silver, and precious stones is probably staring us in the face. The book itself, 1 Corinthians. Scripture. Scripture. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, writes this. He says, It is unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But at the final judgment, all such building and perhaps countless other forms where systems have become more important than the gospel itself will be shown for what it is, something merely human with no character of Christ or his gospel in it. I want to take a moment and talk about one example of wood, hay, and straw that we don't want to build with. And that's the topic of theological liberalism. I covered this in detail in my August podcast, so you can go listen to that for more detail. Theological liberalism is ultimately a mishandling of Scripture. This mishandling of Scripture occurs when powerful cultural currents conflict with historic Orthodox teaching. But rather than jettisoning Christianity entirely, there's an attempt to fuse together aspects of biblical teaching with the prevailing cultural tastes of the day. It has its roots in the European Enlightenment. European Enlightenment was all about empiricism, rationalism, right? If we can't explain it, if we can't prove it, then we're not going to adhere to it. One example of this is Thomas Jefferson's Bible, his version of the Gospels. What did he do with it? He cut out all the supernatural stuff. There's no miracle recorded in Thomas Jefferson's version of the Gospels. There's no resurrection recorded in Thomas Jefferson's version of the Gospel. Why? Why? Because rationalism, empiricism, I don't understand how that works, so it can't be true. But that was the culture of the day. That was the dominant worldview of the day. The cultural taste of the day. It didn't work with the cultural taste of the day to hold to these supernatural things, so we've got to get rid of it. So while the founding fathers wrote a decent constitution, they ought not be looked to as theological mentors. The conditions needed for theological liberalism to prosper occur when the prevailing winds of culture are viewed to be authoritative, rivaling the authority of Scripture. 
So today, instead of rationalism and empiricism, you've got things like philosophy and sociology and psychology, even popular cultural trends, rivaling the authority of Scripture. And the influence of these disciplines creates powerful cultural currents that don't always mesh with Scripture. So along comes theological liberalism, which seeks to retain certain aspects to Christianity that jive with modern sensibilities, but it smooths over, it soft pedals, it ignores or disregards entirely those aspects to biblical teaching that don't pass the test of philosophy, sociology, psychology, or cultural likability. Gary Dorian, who is himself... A liberal theologian writes this. He says, liberal theology is the idea that Christian theology can be genuinely Christian without being based upon external authority. Since the 18th century, liberal Christian thinkers have argued that religion should be modern and progressive and that the meaning of Christianity should be interpreted from the standpoint of modern knowledge and experience. So you have a long lineage of theologically liberal thinkers from William Ellery Channing to Horace Bushnell to Henry Ward Beecher to Washington Gladden, who, depending on the day and age they lived, abandoned belief in Noah and the flood, the judgment of the Canaanites, biblical inerrancy, belief in hell, and even the cross of Jesus as substitutionary payment for sin. Theological liberalism, which rejects external authority is an example, an obvious example, of wood, hay, and straw. It won't withstand the fire of the judgment of God. Spiritual adulthood insists on sound, faithful, biblical teaching, even if it's at odds with the cultural tastes of the day. Fourth and finally, spiritual adulthood demonstrates a reverence for the church. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? That applies to you too. It's us, Alliance Bible Church. We are God's temple. That God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The church is is the temple of the living God. You must understand this, Christian. The church is the temple of the living God. God loves the church. He loves the church. And he will fiercely guard the church as the dwelling place of his own spirit. And because of this, there's a stark entailment. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So a mark of spiritual adulthood is a deep-seated reverence for the church. A deep-seated reverence for the church. How would someone go about destroying the church? (laughs) You could probably write a book entitled 101 Ways to Destroy a Church. You've seen enough. Given the context of 1 Corinthians, let's start with raw factionalism. It's a great way to destroy the church. Let's develop fan clubs. Backbiting often accompanies the fan club problem. Rank heresy will do it. That'll take care of it. Taking our eyes off the gospel, that'll do it. Building a church in superficial programs that rarely bring people into a deepening knowledge of the living God, that'll do it. Entertaining people, but never calling people to self-sacrificing love. Let's add onto that list gossip, prayerlessness, bitterness, sustained biblical illiteracy, materialism. All these are great ways to destroy the church. But know this, if you or I mess with the church in any of these ways, we face destruction at the hand of God. 
And there, there are examples of this in the Bible itself. God struck dead Ananias and his wife Sapphira for financial dealings with the church that lacked full integrity. James, the brother of Jesus, mentions that some Christians may have become ill because of unrepentant sin. Later on in this book, 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to talk about the fact that some Corinthians have gotten sick and even died because they participated in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So the spiritual adult doesn't treat the church as a resource to be consumed. The spiritual adult does not treat the church as a resource to be consumed, but a supernatural gathering of the people of God. Spiritual adult is marked by a deep reverence for the church. Take a look at this list again. Four marks of spiritual adulthood. Selfless contentment, a modest view of church leaders, insistence on sound doctrine, reverence for the church. When I think about these attributes of spiritual adulthood, I see a resilient church. I see a stable church. I see a healthy church. I see a dynamic church. I see a growing church. I see a Jesus-exalting church. I see normal Christianity. It's not extraordinary. It's normal. Let's pray for that. Lord, we do ask you to reveal to us through your word, by the power of your spirit, to reveal to us where we may not be, where we may not be exemplifying marks of spiritual adulthood. Maybe we're dealing with Envy, jealousy problems. Maybe we are looking too fondly upon church leaders, whether it's in this church or someplace else. Maybe we're content to go truth light, not insisting on keeping our fingers on the words of the text. Maybe we have a lighthearted view towards the church. I don't know what it is, Lord, but I pray that you'd show us where we might be off the mark a bit that you would use your word and your spirit to chip away at those things, to bring us more and more into conformity with your purposes, your plan, your vision for spiritual adulthood. We ask that you would do that. Do that in these closing moments. Do that in the days to come. Do that in the weeks to come. Lord, we want, want to be an outpost of the church that fulfills your vision for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.